In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. I'm excited today because we're going to try something a bit different. I'm joined by Jack Gill, who is going to talk to us about his new book, The Battle of Znaim, Napoleon, the Habsburgs, and the End of the War of 1809. Jack has already had a distinguished career. He is author of a number of very well-received works, including a multi-volume work on the 1809 campaign called Thunder on the Danube, and has also written uh, with Eagles to Glory and A Soldier for Napoleon. He's been awarded the John Elting Award, from the Napoleonic History Society, is adjunct professor for the Near East South Asia Center for Strategic Studies in Washington, DC, and is an associate fellow of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Jack, it's great to have you on the Napoleon Assist. Welcome, how have you been? Well, we're doing very well, thank you, and it's a delight to be here. Uh, your website looks just great. It's a, a model of its kind in many ways. Uh, I love the visuals and, uh, and the it's fairly easy to navigate so it's a nice uh, nice addition to the scholarly community oh thank you very much that's very kind of you I, I didn't bring you on just to compliment me but <laughs> i'll take it tell us a bit about your research interests first of all because you've written a fair amount in this period so what grips you and why the fascination with the napoleonic wars well i've been interested in military history for really as long as i can remember from early childhood and this is an interest that spans the entire spectrum of military history, both in time and topic, which is to say many periods and many of what we might call functional areas, although that's not a term we normally associate with military history, but functional areas in the whole enormous field. In terms of time, I've read a great deal about other periods outside of the Napoleonic Revolutionary Era, especially the American Civil War and the Second World War, as well as rather far afield, post-independence India and Pakistan, uh, but other areas and, and regions as well. 
Uh, my main focus has always been what we call operational or campaign histories, but of course those do not exist in a vacuum. They draw on topics and other functional areas again that include everything from recruiting to army organization, the military's role in society, logistics, and of course, technology. Uh, my particular favorite being tanks. So when we came to London for the uh, British Commission of Military History event that you organized last year, we were able to make a side trip to Bovington for the first time, so that was a complete delight. Uh, the why is more difficult to explain in any kind of an objective fashion. Uh, on a professional intellectual level, the revolutionary Napoleonic era is one of change. And whether we call that evolutionary or revolutionary to me is more or less irrelevant in a lot of respects, because what matters in my opinion is that there's a lot that's happening. There are a lot of trends and developments that come to a sort of fruition in this period that will have repercussions for centuries to come. So if we just think about how armies were organized uh, operationally uh, through the Cold War, core systems, divisions, brigades, all of that, that all is uh, comes together in this period of time. Uh, now, as a young boy, of course, the drama and the colorful uniforms, painting figures, that sort of thing, uh, were all a big attraction, as well as some of the astonishing personalities. It's in an era of colorful personalities. See, well, it seems to... Uh, <laughs> have too many colorful personalities. You can barely keep track of them all. Uh, so those remain interesting to this day and never losing sight of all the attendant horrors of conflict and people having their legs blown off or freezing to death or all kinds of other dreadful things. Uh, I was just reading, in fact, on a, uh, a soldier or an officer recording uh, a, a battle in 1813 where an ammunition wagon blows up and he talks about the soldiers who are badly burned as a result of this. And he says, you know, only the fact that I've been involved in so many battles so far allows me to even think about or bear these kinds of uh, dreadful occurrences. On a personal level, uh, when I was 12 years old, I received for my birthday a David Chandler's Campaigns of Napoleon from a wonderful aunt. And I've never regretted shredding that historical path ever since. Uh, but it, it existed before then, but maybe that's a, a good, uh, uh, measuring point in terms of personal experience. So growing up in the States, was Napoleon on your curriculum um, over there? I mean, it's certainly not on the curriculum over here these days. Were, were, were you taught about Napoleon at school or was it just something that was tangential to your education? No, it was very tangential. Uh, just an interest of mine, my own. And um, the um, in the what we call high school and whatnot, you, you might have heard, yes, French Revolution, Napoleon is this emperor guy over there in Europe someplace, but there would have been no detail on him. And in college or university, only if you took courses specifically on that era in, uh, in European history. Um, at the uh, US Army Staff College, you in military history education, you would have a section or several pieces on Napoleon uh, along with other strategists and military thinkers, but uh, but no, not part of the standard American uh, educational curriculum. Interesting. Let's talk, turn to talk about your book now. You make the point very early on in your book on Znaim that the the battle has become a bit of a footnote in history. So before we talk about the events themselves, why do you think that that's become the case and what made you want to write specifically about this engagement? Well I, I think you're exactly right to call it uh, a footnote uh, and it tends to become lost in my view 
in the clutter of events after Wagram. So Wagram is uh, on this titanic scale, and it dwarfs everything before Leipzig in terms of, of size and scale. I mean, Borodino comes close in some respects. And Alec McRibsey's book on Borodino points that out. Uh, but it's almost as if historians after Wagram are as exhausted as the armies were. They're just, <laughs> oh my gosh, okay, we've had uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of soldiers gathered here, uh, never seen anything like this in modern European history or early modern European history and won't until four years later, and then not till really the First World War, maybe uh, 1866. So, oh gosh, we're, we're, so, we're, we're exhausted, this is too complex. And, and yeah, okay, then there's some pursuit and then there's this other engagement and then peace happens. But here we have at Znaim, uh, Napoleon commanding in person against the Austrian Archduke Charles, uh, so Austria's best general, in a battle that's fought over a two day time period. So it's not just some kind of skirmish that happens on an afternoon. And uh, a total, if you add up both sides, of over 100,000 men uh, involved. Militarily, operationally, it's an example of an interesting meeting engagement between two largely veteran armies, uh, but with a big imbalance in numbers favoring the Austrians and the French on the attack, despite being badly outnumbered. So we add to that the fact that there could have been very, very different outcomes. And to me, that makes it pretty interesting uh, all by itself. But we can highlight some other additional aspects that if we go beyond the mere drums and thunder, there is a big major thunderstorm that we'll talk about in a bit but that brings the fighting to a stop. Uh, so there is some, some thunder going on and there are of course lots of drums, but if we consider that first off, the battle occurs while both sides are sending out peace feelers, so simultaneous with vicious fighting, uh, there's this intertwining of war aims and diplomacy simultaneously with the forced marches and the combat. And then secondly, the battle and the associated uh, Franco-Austrian -Nego negotiations occur in a context of a really kind of sordid and acrimonious debate within the Habsburg leadership. So basically, there are those on one side who want to fight on to what one, uh, you can call him a German patriot or an anti-Napoleonist, uh, uh, Friedrich von Gens, calls the phantom of a glorious end. So they want to continue on, you know, die with sword in hand or something like that. And those who see, on the other hand, uh, that uh, immediate peace is really the empire's only hope for survival. So the inside Habsburg leadership circles, there's this bitter uh, debate going on. So all these threads, military, diplomatic, and political, are all finding their ends in a few days in mid-July around this charming little Moravian town of Znaim. So do you think the fact that there's a diplomacy conversation going on whilst all of this is happening is part of the reason that people kind of lose the focus on it? Well, it could be, um, and I think they, another problem is that there's not been much um, written in detail about the battle itself. In really in any language, if, unless you go back a hundred years uh, to uh, a Frenchman named Bois, who wrote a good history of the, the overall period, uh, Wagram and Enzenheim, and a uh, Prusso-Austrian, I guess we can call him, named Binder von Kriegelstein, but other than that, there's not much to go on. So uh, it, it hasn't drawn attention. And as I say, I think people just become, you know, by the time you're writing the book in English, you've, you finish with Wagram and think, oh my gosh, you know, this, I, the publisher isn't gonna, isn't gonna give me another <laughs> 20 pages to talk about this. So I, I guess I better wrap things up. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, is there a temptation just because we have a lot of big set piece battles during this period to just kind of 
be drawn to the the bigger more obvious set piece engagements and therefore push something like Znaim to the periphery do you think it's it's that kind of mentality in the same way that if we talk about Waterloo people talk about what happened on the 18th of June and much less so what happened at Ligny and Cachabra they sort of become a, a sideshow almost even though they could potentially have revolutionized that com campaign yeah, I think that's a I think that's a good point. And uh, Ligny, I mean, there's a lot written in English on Katravra, but in, Ligny is is uh, other than a very few books is almost completely ignored. There's a lovely little museum there, by the way, and uh, the battlefield has a lot to offer uh, for the people who can actually go there and visit. And it's an interesting, a very very interesting engagement. Um, so. It, yeah, I think some of these some of these battles tend to get pushed aside, uh, especially in the in the English language uh, scholarship, or or popular writing as well as scholarship for that matter. You're absolutely right. Ligny is, I mean, Catchabra, Waterloo, very self-contained. Ligny is a very different field that reveals kind of very different things about understanding what warfare was probably more typically like than you would get from Waterloo and Catchabra, in in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And uh, as I say, I think it deserves, uh, it deserves close study. There's a lot written about it uh, on the German side or in German, on the Prussian side, one should say <laughs> more specifically. And there are all sorts of interesting characters involved there. I mean, beyond the colorful Blücher and, and Gneisenau, his chief of staff, you have Clausewitz, the chief of staff to on the third corps to General Thielmann, who is a Saxon, uh, who's rebranded first as a Russian and then as a Prussian and has a very uh, checkered, at least, history, uh, sometimes uh, considered a, uh, a very negative, disloyal person in Saxon writing and other times as a great hero. So there are all kinds of interesting people going, and Bulow and these others, uh, I mean, Bulow is another interesting individual. So there's all sorts of fascinating personalities on, on both sides there. Let's let's take it back to Zaim though. Sure. Uh, much much though, I'd love to talk to you all day about Lenin. <laughs> um, I've I've probably bored listeners to death um, with Lenin and, and Waterloo with my Waterloo Remembered series. So so let's talk about Zaim. A lot of listeners, as we've kind of touched on already, maybe haven't heard of this because it has kind of been pushed to the periphery. I have to admit, until I met you and read your excellent book, I certainly hadn't. So set the scene for everybody. This happens just after Wagram, doesn't it? but whilst that armistice is being negotiated. Yes, that's correct. So it, the battle occurs several days after Wagram. So the first part of the, well, the, the first, I don't know, 50 or so pages of the book talk about the overall war. Uh, and I don't call it a campaign, I call it a war, which is kind of, to me, more in line with US NATO terminology here in the 21st century, 20th, 21st centuries. But anyway, the, uh, the first part of the book, you have to set the stage in the entire war in part because the, of this bitter fighting inside, this debate inside the Austrian leadership circles, because that begins even before the war opens and it continues on and only gets more poisonous as the war continues between the Archduke Charles on the one side and those who, who are who sort of fight to the death types on the other side. So the beginning of the book is the opening of the whole war. And then there's a section of course on Wagram and then the pursuit. So the Austrians are retreating after Wagram, the French are pursuing from seven to nine July. So you've got uh, about four days of pretty interesting to me, uh, small scale engagements that are, have a lot of attraction all by themselves. 
And the narrative then moves on to the actual battle on 10 and 11 July with the simultaneous peace possibilities and these debates inside uh, the Habsburg uh, court and, and uh, officer, senior officers. So if we set the strategic scene, Wagram happens on 5 to 6 July. It's an enormous battle and it's fought uh, after Napoleon expends enormous effort to bring every possible bayonet, saber, and, and cannon to the field at uh, just across the Danube from Vienna. And this crossing of the Danube on the night of 4 to 5 July is really one of the great river crossings in all of military history. I mean, there was an astonishing uh, achievement and uh, fascinating all by itself. But Wagram's not enough. The Austrians escape intact. So all of Napoleon's effort uh, does not produce the kind of victory that he wanted. It's not a Jena or an Austerlitz that he kind of had a right in some respects to expect. The Austrians get away and casualties on both sides are dreadful. So it's not, it's not what he's looking for. And that brings us to war aims and to the battle at, that ends up at Znaim. Napoleon, in terms of war aims, wants this war an unwanted war from his perspective to be over as rapidly as possible. But now after Wagram, he's got to chase Charles's army north into the Moravian mountains. And uh, the war could go on for weeks. There are all kinds of possibilities for unpredictable, undesirable developments he doesn't want to see. So now it's in his interest to end things quickly, but that means he has to bring the Austrian army to bay. On the other side, Charles also wants the war to end quickly. He's convinced, and Wagram has only reinforced this conviction, that the war is already lost. And he fears that another defeat will destroy the army and therefore mean the end of the dynasty, the Habsburg dynasty and the empire. The members of the Austrian war party, on the other hand, are a third element. We would call them war hawks today, but based of course on the US-British war in 1812 to 1815. And they despise Charles. I mean, it's sometimes really quite astonishing reading some of the things that are written to the Austrian emperor, the Kaiser, who's Charles's elder brother, about Charles. I mean, disparaging him in remarkable terms to his older brother. Uh, so while Charles is trying to end the war, they, they want to continue on and they want to fight to the, to the end. So after Wagram, Charles is retreating to the north. He's hoping to gain some breathing space. His army's very battered. He wants to recover. He somehow thinks Napoleon will grant him that time. And he's trying to persuade his brother, the Kaiser, to open negotiations. On the French side, Napoleon's willing to accept either a military or a diplomatic into the war as long as it's a clear victory. But his, exha his exhausted army loses touch with the Austrians. And so he has to send pursuit forces on two different avenues in hopes of regaining contact and bringing the war to an end. From 7 to 9 July, therefore, the French are constantly pushing the Austrians, trying to determine their principal line of retreat, while the Austrians are steadily backpedaling. Every night a march, every day an attack, writes Charles. The French finally locate the bulk of the Austrian army, but most of Napoleon's reserves are now too far away. They're still at the Wagram battlefield. So it's a question of time. Will the Austrians be able to pass out of Znaim, which forms a bottleneck, as we'll talk about, I think, in a, in a bit, um, or Will Napoleon be able to arrive in time with enough reinforcements to deal them the crushing blow that he had hoped to inflict and did not at Wagram? Or there's yet another possibility, and that is, will these very tentative edgings towards peace bring at least a temporary cessation to the fighting, if not an end to the war by itself? So that's kind of the strategic picture if we uh, approach this battle on 10 and 11 July, 1809. 
Can I just go back to something that you were mentioning earlier? Because you talked about how, you know, this wasn't an Austerlitz or a, or a Jena, um, and Napoleon was trying to achieve something in that order. Do you think that was a feasible aim at that moment in time, given the army he had at his disposal? Because we often talk about how the Grand Armée in 1812 wasn't quite the spectacular force that he had under him when it came to 1805, the 1805 campaigns. So was Napoleon being slightly overambitious, or do you think that was still a feasible war aim? No, I think it was feasible. Um, and I, I think the, the army of 1809 is often underestimated. Uh, I mean, it is not the army of 1805 or 1806, that's clear. But at the same time, it's not, uh, it's not 1813 either. So it is, uh, it is, it's tactical edge, I think I've written elsewhere, has corroded somewhat. And, but it is still tactically uh, very competent. And um, the, the army can maneuver. It's not just blocks of sullen, uh, ignorant conscripts being shoved around the battlefield. Um, it can maneuver quite effectively and has uh, at several points, uh, despite being outnumbered and in sort of from a, a geographic standpoint, disadvantageous positions on the tactical level achieves some pretty remarkable successes. Um, but it is, it is not, you know, the Austerlitz army or the Jena army by any means. That's, uh, that's also clear. Uh, so I don't think it was unreasonable. There's an interesting argument to be made that what Napoleon does do is he underestimates the resilience of the Austrian army because, and some of that can be attributed to the core system, which the Austrians have instituted and that this, uh, as, um, uh, some authors will point out is makes a big difference in the in the Austrian army's ability to cohere despite the battering that it takes at Wagram. And then had you had an army that was uh, barely organized even at the division level, like the Prussians at Jena Auerstedt, that the, the Austrian army, you, know, you could arguably could say, just think about it here on the point of my head, you could arguably say maybe the Austrian army would have broken apart. But it is, it is more resilient and it's more well tied together. Soldiers, when they're retreating and they're lost, they don't know where to go. The, there's a great account of one battalion commander who says, well, I, I was asking everyone where the sixth corps had gone because that's to whom he belonged. And so he's trying to find his proper place to go. Uh, so it, it's, uh, it's a more resilient army. It's uh, in some respects better trained and more coherent. Uh, and, and therefore poses a challenge to, uh, to Napoleon, despite all the effort he puts into getting his forces across this major river obstacle uh, to fight the Austrians. Where do you feel the Austrian army is at this point in its development? Because it goes through a series yeah. of <laughs> reforms and developments, doesn't it? So, so where do you think it is in, in that kind of transition towards what it eventually becomes? Well, I think in, in some respects, uh, 1809 is its pinnacle, and it is not as... Um, I mean, the, the Austrian army does, does just fine in 1813, 1814, but, uh, but in many respects, the, I think the army of 1809 is, is the Habsburg Empire's best effort during this whole period. Uh, the, um, there's, uh, <laughs> curiously, because of the defeat in 1809, when it comes to 1813, the way they organize the army is essentially in a core system, but no one dares to use the word core. So instead, they use an awkward phrase, Armee Abteilung, which means kind of sort of army section or army, in World War II terms, it's usually uh, translated as army detachment. But 
no one wants to say corps because the whole notion of army corps has been uh, sort of sullied by the experience of 1809. That was the first time they tried it. And they tried it poorly because they only institute the corps system in February of 1809. And then they launch a war in the very beginning of April. There's been no training. The, the corps commanders don't know what to do. The corps staff, such as they are, don't know what to do. So uh, no one knows really how to behave in a corps system. But it, it does lend, uh, I think, arguably the army a great deal more uh, robustness than it had sort of demonstrated earlier. And tell us about Znaim itself as a location. Where is it, first of all, and, and why does it become the focus of this battle? Yeah, Znaim is, is now called Znoimo. If I apologies to anyone who's a Czech speaker who's listening, but now Znoimo is a delightful little town uh, just north of uh, Vienna, about an hour's drive north of Vienna in the Czech Republic, uh, along a river called the Taya that we'll talk about as, as the battle goes on. And uh, it's only a few kilometers north of the border with Austria. You drive up there through beautiful wine country. It's, it's really a delightful place. Uh, in 1809, it was important because major roads converged there. One of them was still being finally completed, uh, a chose, as they would have said in the time. Uh, but it's also a bottleneck because the Austrians who are trying to pass for, to escape from the French have to pass through what soldiers of the day would have called a defile. Uh, meaning that this huge Austrian baggage train gets all clogged up because it's trying to jam its way over the lone bridge uh, on the Tyre River and then through the forest until through the town itself because uh, there's no other way around it or it's difficult to get around and then through forests and hills to the north of the town. So this defile imposes a very lengthy delay on the Austrians uh, as they try to retreat and therefore the French pursuit is able to catch up uh, on the 10th of July. And talk to us about the battlefield itself. I know it's very difficult to try and sort of paint a picture <laughs> through words. Uh, and in an ideal world, we, people would have a, a map in front of them, which of course they will have if they buy your book. So go buy the book. Um, That's right. But, but give us a, a sense of the terrain, of the locations, of the key points of fighting. Try and kind of flesh things out for people. Sure. Okay. If In, in that period of time, uh, soldiers would talk about positions and a, an ideal position would have characteristics such as easy lines of retreat, uh, some high grounds so you could see the enemy's approach, uh, maybe a, an obstacle in front of you, so the enemy attacking you has to cross a stream or those sorts of things. And from the Austrian perspective, Znaim was not a good position, position in quotation marks. Uh, it is, uh, the, the town is, uh, is an old, it dates back to the 11th century or so, maybe earlier, uh, so a small walled town and the uh, terrain around and it, it has this river that flows in uh, that, that covers its southern approach. So coming from the south, you have to cross the river, then get to the town. The town is walled, so you can't just sort of walk in anywhere. You have to go through a gate uh, to the west or the, the French left, the Austrian right. Uh, the river winds around and has very steep cliffs. So it's, it's basically unapproachable from the western side. You can approach from the south, you have to cross the river. Coming from the east, where part of the, one of the French forces comes, and Napoleon himself, uh, the, you, you've already passed the river. So there's easy approach from the eastern side, or the southeast really. And yet the terrain is very choppy. Uh, and in, uh, in French and German, even in the German language, they would use the word coupe. 
So it's not something where you have a good overview necessarily. It's very, it's chopped up by, by uh, narrow ravines uh, that make it difficult for cavalry on the central part of the field. But the eastern part of the field is quite open and rolling. And so it's suitable for cavalry. And the French cavalry is, uh, the, the Austrians are terrified because of their experience in the war of the superiority in numbers and uh, tactics of the, uh, of the French cavalry. So from the south, you have to cross the river to, to get to the town. Uh, from the, and the east, you, southeast, you can approach the town, uh, but there are these narrow ravines. The, the hillsides are all covered with uh, vineyards and orchards, especially cherries. And there are all kinds of accounts of soldiers climbing into the trees to eat the cherries because it's, it's hot, they're exhausted, they haven't, had, they haven't been well fed, and uh, yet they, they put down, you know, some of them put down their muskets, climb into the cherry trees, grab cherries, and then they change places with other fellows in the firing line. And they, they other guys go up and get some fruit, uh, fruity refreshment before continuing on. So <laughs> it's one of these bizarre things in warfare. I love that image. That's just so typical <laughs> of soldiers during this time, isn't it? The, know, the other, the other fighting. That's right. That's right. Well, where, where's the, where's the food? Where's the wine? Uh, and, you know, supposedly, according to the local history, uh, the the French go past a what had been a monastery, and the Austrians had turned it into a tobacco factory. And the well, how you do that, I don't know. But uh, there was an organ there, and apparently, some French some exuberant Frenchmen were playing the organ while the battle was going on, which just seems completely bizarre. Uh, <laughs> it's, the, uh, the other angle is that the, that's difficult to portray uh, verbally is that the Austrian line of retreat, this one major road that goes through Znaim to generally to the north, but the French approaching from this southeastern side, sort of past the river, uh, as I mentioned, and that'll be Mar General Marmont and Napoleon will show up on that side. They're, they're actually very close to the Austrian line of retreats. So the Austrian line of retreat is almost parallel with the battle line. And so the Austrians are very, very sensitive and worried about their left flank, which is where uh, Napoleon and Marmont will show up. And they're, they're very concerned that the, uh, the French will intercept their line of retreat and if that happens, there's no other major road and they're gonna be forced to, to flee into uh, over rough dirt tracks and into hills and uh, very rugged terrain. So how good is the intelligence that the Austrians have then? <laughs> if, if, the, if, if you kind of got this, this flank almost sort of hanging in, in the wind as it were, how much do they actually know about where the French are? Uh, well, there, there are two angles here. One is that the, the Austrians had not wanted, they didn't want to fight there and they did not plan to fight there. But because they have, uh, they've left the back door open by sort of poor deployments, uh, they end up being caught in a meeting engagement, which is not the preferred way for the Austrians to fight. So they didn't, did not care to or plan to fight there. Uh, so that's not so much a matter of intelligence, it's just being caught by surprise where in, in physical, the geographic location. But on the intelligence side, it's also very interesting. I mean, here we are in the middle of the Habsburg Empire. One would think that there would be very easy for them, and, and they have certainly an experienced and, a, and an adequate cavalry, uh, it would be very easy for them to collect intelligence. And yet their intelligence on the French is really quite poor. Uh, the French are scouting around and they're employ trying to employ spies and everything, but things are in movement so much that it's difficult for them to do so rapidly. 
but the Austrians have a very poor idea of where the French are. They are one convinced that they're outnumbered. When they're not, they actually outnumber the French by a considerable degree. And secondly, they uh, they think that the uh, that Marshal Davout, for one, is present with his entire Third Corps, and he's not. He's He's, he's trying to get there, but he's got another 30 kilometers or so to go. So, and they fear that, that Prince Eugène with the army of Italy is coming and he's not. So it's actually quite surprising that in the middle of their own empire, uh, their intelligence is really quite uh, limited. And how does the battle play out then? Well, so we've talked about uh, the, the French pursuing, the Austrians retreating. Uh, and the Austrians leaving this back door open. Uh, the reason is they were trying, Charles was trying to establish himself in a true position. So he said, well, there's the position uh, on this little stream and we're gonna form ourselves there. But uh, they failed to do so. And uh, that's because the French are following them on these, uh, in these two lines of retreat on the, the side that has to cross the river coming from the south is Marshal Massena. And on the side that has to come from the southeast, doesn't cross, does not have to cross the river, is still General Marmont, who becomes promoted the day after the battle to marshal. Uh, and Napoleon <laughs> sends message that he's now a marshal, much to Marmont's surprise. But through a lapse of attention, the Austrians have left this back door open in front of Marmont. And so he uh, that gives him access to this defile at Znaim. In fact, the Austrian Emperor Kaiser Franz is happily taking his lunch at an inn called the Three Princes in the town of Znaim on the 9th of July. But he has to pack up and, and dash away in some haste because anxious staff officers come riding in to tell him that, uh, oh, Marmont's scouts are only about an hour away outside of town. <laughs> so the emperor himself is in danger and the French actually capture a whole bunch of kind of courtiers and whatnot who've been too slow and didn't make it uh, make the escape. But luckily for Franz, Marmont is delayed, and he's delayed mostly by widespread inebriation among his infantry. I mentioned that the, this, the region is very famous for its wines, and that's a whole story all by itself. Uh, so on the 9th of July- Please tell us that. Please tell us the inebriation <laughs> so, story. So on the 9th of July, it's very hot. And in those days, of course, provision of water and other drinkables for soldiers was not the first consideration until you were in a bivouac and you put yourself by a stream and hope that the cavalry wasn't parked upstream from you somewhere with its watering its horses and the horses doing other things in the river. So the soldiers are very thirsty. And of course, most of these men are not wealthy. So the idea that you might get free wine is quite attractive. And the region is full. I mean, it, it's, if the numbers are correct, uh, the amount of wine is astonishing and there are all these wine cellars so soldiers would break into the wine cellars and avail themselves usually quite wastefully just knocking the corks or, or the, the taps out of the wine or shooting holes in them and then carrying the wine away in buckets and apparently some uh, were suffocated because of the crowds that were trying to jam into these narrow underground cellars uh, and sometimes there were already Austrians in there uh, drunk initially, and the French just kind of, okay, fine, you know, who cares about you know, Corporal Franz over there, where's the wine? Uh, and so this, the you know, Marmont writes later on that his infantry is basically out of action. Uh, he takes then severe measures, a couple of guys are executed uh, for 
uh, indiscipline and, and bad behavior. He visits all the, the bivouacs that night, chastises the officers for, for poor discipline, not taking care of their men. Uh, but it takes, it, it takes the, the wind out, if you will, out of the pursuit on the 9th of July. His cavalry continues on, which is why Franz has to pack up his, you know, finish his sandwich or whatever he's eating and, and dash away from the three princes in. But the infantry is more or less uh, you know, out of action and therefore has to, uh, uh, normal is delayed by some, uh, by uh, 12 hours or a day in, in his pursuit. There are so many parallels there with what happens in the Peninsular War. The <laughs> images of you know, dragoons casually shooting open vats of wine and everybody kind of descending and fighting for the, the scraps that spew out. Um, there's, there's, a wonderful, there's a wonderful account from a Bavarian artillery drummer is that Marmont's force is the small corps includes a division of Bavarians and they wore white pantaloons, white linen trousers. And he talks about how uh, sort of staggering out of some cellar with buckets of, of wine and how his, the bottoms of his pantaloons were stained red because <laughs> that happened to be a, a cellar with lots of red wine. Uh, although I think predominantly they grow, uh, they produce whites up there. But it's, uh, it, there are all kinds of scenes like this. And the, the Austrians, even before the French show up, this has been a problem for the retreating Austrians. And the same fellow I referred to earlier talks about, he's trying to get his battalion back to the Sixth Corps, but his men are, are attracted by the wines. A lot of them wander off to the wine cellars. Others are from the area and they're fearful that, uh, that their own products and their families will be endangered because the other Austrians are marauding through the wine cellars and falling drunk outside. So it, it's, it's a real story. And I find it really telling that Marmont, just like Wellington, blames the officers for not looking after their men well enough, almost as if it's inevitable. The, you know, yes. you, you turn your back for 10 seconds, that's it, they're going to be gone. They're but gone. They're so drunk, they're not going to be able to stand up. And then you're not going to be able to fight. And it's your fault for not keeping an eye on them and having eyes on right. the back of your head. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. One important question that I know people will be dying for me to ask before we, we move on a little bit. The Three Princes Inn, people will want to go there if it still exists. <laughs> or is it still standing? Well, I don't, I, you can find, I don't know that the Three Princes is still there. And that's a, that's a good question. I don't think so, or at least it's not called that anymore. Uh, they, they do have a plaque that shows where Napoleon had visited and cause he, does, he doesn't spend the night there but he does go, uh, go to Znaim after the battle and reviews Marmont or at least parts of, of Massena's corps. Uh, so there are, there are plaques mentioning where uh, Napoleon was but I don't know if the Three Princes is still there. There used to be apparently something called the Napoleon Oak, however you say that in Czech. Uh, but that tree fell down, uh, and there. It, and if you you can wander around and find the location where it was, but the original Napoleon's oak, which allegedly or legendarily marked where Napoleon was on this hillside observing the battle, uh, is no more there. What a shame! That's a real shame. Such <laughs> uh, is history. <laughs> That's right. Tell us about <laughs> lightning strikes. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Tell us about how things develop then. Okay, so Marmont's men, after they get over their hangovers or, you know, while they're dealing with their hangovers, in fact, the Bavarian, there's a, there's a, <laughs> because the Bavarians are there, there's a lot of great uh, sort of anecdotal information. One guy records that, well, yeah, we, and I can't imagine how, the, what this, you know, did for horses, but they would, some of the cavalrymen would try to water their horses with wine, which I can't imagine was very good for equine health. 
Uh, and they said there, that water was short, but wine was so prevalent that when they, they got their meat ration, they would boil the meat in wine because there, there, there wasn't enough water, but they had plenty of wine. So, okay, well, let's do that. Um, so anyway, as, once, once Marmol's guys get over their hangovers uh, the next day, 10 July, Marmol pushes the advance. Now he thinks he's only pursuing a small rear guard which makes sense given what he's encountered so far on the, the 8th and the 9th. On the 10th, he thinks he's just got a small rear guard. He's capable of overwhelming them, so he's going to drive ahead. He only has about 18,000 French and Bavarians. But then he discovers that he stumbled upon the main Austrian army, about 63,000. So he's outnumbered easily three to one. But as apprehensive as he is about his precarious situation, uh, the Austrians are equally alarmed because of his surprise appearance. Since he's come through an area they thought was covered, it's not. Their force, their tiny force there had run away. And he's approaching again from the southeast. So he's very close, only three, four kilometers from the Austrian main line of retreat, this main road heading north. So they're very, they're very anxious. And that, that road is crammed. My Marmont eventually gets a view of it. He can't see it straight away with vehicles two abreast, slowly, slowly making their way north in a, in a tremendous traffic jam. Well, Marmont decides he'll brass it out, if I can quote the man who would be king, uh, with an offensive action to kind of hide his numerical weakness. And as they would say in those days, to impose on the enemy. And a vicious fight therefore ensues over a small village on his front, a place called Klein Tesvitz which changes hands several times, much of it catches fire. Uh, the French and Bavarians are very happy to discover there's a, a uh, magazine of bread there, which they uh, have been short of food. So they're very happy to distribute the bread enough to feed the Bavarian division. But the Austrians fail to detect, again, the intelligence, they fail to detect his weakness. And they leave him in possession of the town and this, the hillsides on the southeastern side of Znaim as night falls. So there's all this fighting goes on during the day. The Austrians are luckily, in a desperate kind of way, able to chase off French cavalry that gets to about a kilometer away from their main line of retreat. One can only imagine what would have happened with all these teamsters and wagons and whatnot jammed two abreast or more on this single road going north to a forest. But the Austrians make no attempt to cut him off from the rest of the French army, even though he's really kind of isolated. He's about a day's march away from anybody else that could help him. Uh, so the first day's fighting, therefore, comes to an end. He's watching the Austrians. Their ponderous trains are trying to get away. Uh, and he sends some uh, fairly desperate messages off to Napoleon and Marshal Davu calling for help. The Austrians, for their part, are trying to bring together the rest of the army around the town of Znaim, so north of the, this river, the Tyre River. And that brings us to the second day. So now night has fallen. The, the only French on the field are Marmont. But on the second day, uh, Charles is all concentrated now. He's brought all of his forces together north of the river, around the town, and he's covering the southern approach over the river uh, and facing Marmont on his right, or I'm sorry, his left, the French right. The baggage train still clogs the escape route, so he sees Charles, sees no op other option but to stand and fight until he can get all his baggage and artillery away. In the meantime, two things happen. First off, Napoleon personally arrives on Marmont's side of the field, so the French right, the Austrian left. And he brings with him about seven, eight to 8,000 French cavalry of the Imperial Guard and the Cavalry Reserve, a number of horse artillery batteries, but no infantry. 
And the, uh, his presence is immediately evident. There's a wonderful quote from a Prussian who had taken Austrian service who says, oh yes, we saw the tents going up and clearly some, some senior general, it must have been Napoleon on this hillside uh, opposite the Austrians. Charles, as I mentioned, it, he thinks he's already outnumbered. He's not, but he thinks he is. And he believes his army's on its last legs. And in some respects, it's in a pretty bad way. And now he's facing Napoleon very clearly uh, in person. And Marmont launches some, what we would call now, pinning attacks or holding attacks. The Austrians mistake those as full-blooded assaults, but Napoleon is just trying to hold the Austrians in position. So that's the first thing on the second day of the battle, the 11th of July. The second thing is that at around the time Napoleon appears, Massena shows up on the French left, south of the river, the Austrian right. So he comes with two of his divisions. That's about 10,000 infantry and three to 4,000 cavalry. Now the French are still outnumbered about two to one. So maybe 37,000 French versus 74 or so thousand Austrians if you took them all up. But Massena, uh, with no orders, attacks at once. He sends his forces across the river and presses onto the town, even though he's numerically inferior to the defenders behind the river on a hillside in front of the town. Why does he do that? Well, <laughs> because he's Messina, and because he's, <laughs> because he's, yeah, he's, uh, it's clear that the other, that the other French forces are there. And so uh, he's been pushing the Austrians for two or three days now, and uh, he's not going to give them any respite. So even though he's outnumbered, and, and you can get a wonderful view from his position looking down now on, I mean, the town's grown up a lot, so you miss a lot of the terrain, but his position, there's a petrol station, if I can be British about it, a gas station, uh, where you can park and look down from his position down the slope to the river and then up the slope on the other side to the, to the town with its really unique and interesting spires. Uh, so he, he attacks and he's successful. He's pushing the Austrians back towards the town. The French are driving for the town gates. Charles sends grenadiers to reinforce the defenders. And one of those battalion, grenadier battalions, launches an attack by accident or by ha happy happenstance with the Austrians. It's a very cloudy, drizzly, rainy day, kind of like it is here in Virginia at the moment. Uh, and except it was hot. <laughs> and the, uh, the clouds burst at the same time that these grenadiers attack. So in seconds, uh, muskets won't fire, commands can't be heard, visibility vanishes, and the French and the Germans, because Massena also has a, a brigade of Badeners and a brigade of Hessians, the French and the German soldiers of Massena's corps tear, tear off into trying to find some shelter, most of them from this tremendous downpour. Well, the Austrians then attack and the French and German soldiers scatter all over. The Austrians are driving now towards the river that Massena has just crossed and its lone, lone bridge. But Massena retains his composure. He's in, a, he's in a carriage because he'd been injured just prior to Wagram and couldn't ride a horse very well. So from his carriage, he orders a counterattack by the French heavy cavalry, the cuirassier division that's attached to his corps. And the French cuirassiers drive across the bridge uh, savage the grenadiers, uh, killing, capturing, or, uh, or scattering, wounding most of them. Uh, the whole, most of the battalion is, is destroyed. And the, and the cuirassiers then drive for the town gate. 
So the Austrians now in full retreat, just as the French and Bodners were moments ago. And luckily for the Austrians, uh, a battalion of Vienna volunteers, so a, a militia battalion, is sort of the last reserve. They, they had a, an interesting escapade all by themselves. They're in the center of the town, uh, in the town market, trying to recover from a night's march. And they're called forward to, to save the day. And they do. They show up at the town gates at the last moment. They, they lower, the Austrians lower the, the toll barrier. And these Vienna volunteers hold off the French, who are now, of course, their horses are blown, the soldiers are exhausted, they're disordered, and they fall back. So the town's saved for the moment, but more French troops arrive. They're still outnumbered. Uh, and the fighting is going on raging, really, with great bitterness, when suddenly, out of no, to everyone's surprise, staff officers appear to call for a ceasefire. And they ride between the lines to announce that a ceasefire has been agreed on the battlefield. Uh, two of these men, uh, one of whom is the, the famous or infamous uh, uh, later general, then Captain Marbeau, he's wounded and his Austrian, lightfully, lightly but very painfully, and his Austrian counterpart is wounded quite badly because they can't, they can't get the soldiers to stop shooting. But nonetheless, in about, it takes about an hour to get that all to stop. But by around seven o'clock in the evening, 1900, on 11 July, musketry and, and uh, cannonade stops. And although nobody yet knows it, the last shots of the war have been fired. In fact, the, one of Massena's aides de camp is uh, Mark Graf Wilhelm of Baden, because of the Badeners in Massena's corps. And he jokes with Marbeau that, so oh, well, you were wounded by the last musket fired, <laughs> musket ball fired in the campaign. Uh, so, so that's how that's how the battle then plays out in these two days. Uh, it, you know, it is, in many respects, quite dramatic. Even though there's not a lot happening on Marmont's side of the field, on Massena's side, it's uh, it, there's all sorts of drama unfolding as uh, this rainstorm happens and Austrian grenadiers attack, French heavy cavalry goes counterattacks, and back and forth it goes. One of the pictures that you paint very beautifully in your book and which we've touched upon just now is the complex diplomatic maneuvering that unfolds at the same time as the fighting is happening. So tell us about the Austrian emissaries Weizenwolf and <laughs> Liechtenstein and their experiences. Well this is also interesting. I mean so I've mentioned the ceasefire. So how does that happen? Well there's, again there are two things simultaneously going on. Uh, the action that leads to the battlefield ceasefire is that Napoleon has accepted an Austrian offer of the previous day on the 10th of July. The Austrians had said, well, you know, we'd like a ceasefire. And this is just Charles trying to gain time. So he'd offered a ceasefire. So, well, you know, we've, we've, we've sent uh, Prince Liechtenstein to seek Napoleon. We should have a ceasefire until he shows up and meets the emperor, blah, blah, blah. Well, Marmont has, will have none of this. And he says, hey, I, I'm accepting no ceasefire. I'm not authorized to do so. And by the way, the emperor's on his way with an enormous army and we're, we're going to defeat you, uh, you know, tomorrow. So, Thanks very much, but no thanks. Well, the second day, on the 11th of July, Napoleon says, okay, you know, I think we've, we've achieved enough here, and if I can use the ceasefire to lock the Austrians in place, then once my reinforcements arrive, we can crush them on the 12th. So he's quite happy to have the war come to an end, as long as Wagram is seen as a greater victory as Austerlitz. So he has to, the victory has to be just as big as 1805. Um, and he, he won't have enough troops till sometime after dark, so fine, ceasefire for the moment is good, as long as the Austrians agree to enter into armistice negotiations and conclude an armistice 
by dawn of 12 July. So if he can impose sufficiently stringent terms, then he's happy to end the war here and now and not risk another battle or having the war drag on to some kind of uncertain future and difficult terrain. So the Austrian chief of staff and the French chief of staff, Marshal Berthier, they meet at a place called the, uh, the, the Red Barn or the, the I guess the, uh, the, the, Red, uh, the Red Manor, Red Estate, <clears throat> uh, outside of Znaim near Napoleon's tents. And by midnight, they've hammered out an armistice agreement, which has pretty stiff terms for the Austrians, uh, but, and it, but it halts the war in all theaters of combat. So not just the battlefield ceasefire that had been agreed, but now an agreement for the entire, uh, the entire war. So in the meantime, while that's happening on the battlefield, an Austrian general named Weisenwolf, who had been uh, sent to the French on the pretense of negotiating prisoner exchange just prior to Wagram, and had been detained, obviously, once because Napoleon's already on the march to Wagram, uh, he's had several days in captivity, but the French have treated him. He's had lunch with Napoleon and met the emperor personally, and the French have treated him with extreme courtesy and care. And then they release him to go back to Charles, which he does. And he reports how Napoleon's interested in peace. And Charles seizes on this, uh, writes to his brother, the emperor, uh, oh, look, this is great. And we're, we're sending Prince Liechtenstein off to find Napoleon. But Liechtenstein, for some reason, it's not, I'm not able to understand why this is. Uh, maybe there's archive somewhere in the Liechtenstein family, I don't know. He takes the wrong road, or he takes the long road. And although he leaves uh, on the 10th of July, he doesn't catch up to Napoleon at Znaim until about one in the morning on the 12th. So by this time, the armistice has already been agreed. And the best <laughs> the Liechtenstein can do is try to gauge Napoleon's temperament in a very long audience somewhere between like one and three in the morning on the 12th of July. This is kind of unsatisfactory, but the next day at dawn, he rides over to find Charles uh, and they, uh, but by now it's kind of too late. They can't really influence the terms of the strict armistice uh, and both sides immediately begin repositioning their armies. The Austrians evacuate Znaim, Masena occupies it. Napoleon, uh, as I mentioned, reviews his corps. Uh, spends the night outside of, uh, of Znaim in a, in a mill in a place called Hürtnitz, and then heads back to the Schönbrunn Palace outside Vienna. So for the Austrians, that's Napoleon. On the, front, on the Austrian side, Charles and Liechtenstein confer in this kind of gloomy atmosphere of their headquarters. Uh, Charles composes a very lengthy explanatory letter to his brother, the Kaiser. Liechtenstein is to carry this note to their imperial master. But inexplicably, he delays for several days. He owns some estates there in Moravia. And he, after talking to Charles for a day or so, he then rides off and, I don't know, takes a rest for a day or so in one of his estates, and then stops to see Napoleon at Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna. So the first that the Austrian Kaiser learns about the armistice is through French outposts who tell the, uh, tell the other their Austrian counterparts, oh, by the way, this is way down in Hungary, not, not in Znaim, but the, the French have notified their whole army, there's an armistice, stop fighting. And the, so they, down in Hungary, they say, okay, don't, no more shooting uh, with this armistice. Well, the Austrians don't know anything about this. The emperor doesn't know, so he's surprised. He tells his, his generals, don't believe this until you get a letter from me. So even though, uh, negotiations were in the offing and his advisors had, had encouraged him to stay in the, what's now the Czech Republic. 
the good Kaiser Franz has headed off to Hungary. So he's now sort of out of touch with what's going on. And even though they're about to negotiate possibly an end of the war with his counterpart, the French emperor, he heads off to Hungary after his interrupted lunch at nine. So now he's in Hungary surrounded by the court's war party and he's changed his mind. He wants nothing to do with negotiations, he repudiates those and issues bellicose proclamations about how they're gonna continue the war against the evil French. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that's Weisenwolf, Liechtenstein and Kaiser Franz in this uh, complex arrangement of battle and negotiations. Wow, just <laughs> wow. <laughs> Diplomacy is always about the art of managing uh, personalities, isn't it? Well, it is. Uh, and we haven't even mentioned the Austrian foreign minister in Metternich, but that's, that's, a, that's a very complex story that'll probably exceed your time limit here. <laughs> I think Metternich is probably a story for, I mean, we could do a whole series <laughs> on Metternich, frankly. Um, one thing I want to go back on briefly, you, you mentioned that Wagram for Napoleon had to be seen as a greater triumph than Austerlitz, which considering how deeply impressive Austerlitz is to us now, seems pretty incredible. So why was that so important to him? Well, he wanted to, he wanted to exit the war, but he wanted to exit it as the clear victor. There could be no doubt that the French had completely defeated the Austrians after the Austrians had had the temerity to launch this war in the first place back in April. And so he, uh, he's, he's willing to consider, he sort of muses about, although it's not clear how serious he was, he muses about even breaking up the Austrian empire, deposing Kaiser Franz, putting another hops, one of, he had a lot of brothers, putting one of his brothers in his place, uh, or breaking it up into its, because it is a, an empire and not really a nation state, breaking it up into some of its constituent parts, Kingdom of Hungary, Kingdom of Bohemia, the Duchy of Austria, something like that. Uh, so he, he wants to exit the war, but only if by demonstrating that there's, uh, that's clearly he has won. And because of the socio-political military impact of Austerlitz, he wants that same kind of, uh, of impact from uh, from Wagram. So let's talk about the terms of the armistice then, because you argue that Napoleon was quite pragmatic in extracting terms that were punitive, but didn't go so far as to be catastrophic for the empire. Yeah, I guess there, there are three things we can say here. Uh, first is that this ceasefire on 11 July on the battlefield and the, the war-wide armistice the next day are only the first steps on kind of a long road to peace. And the peace isn't signed until 14 October. So we're really quite timely here on the 12th of October. And uh, they're just about to do that. Uh, Liechtenstein's the guy who signs them, by the way. They have to be ratified by the Kaiser, of course. But it's Liechtenstein who, who makes the, who <laughs> puts his, he, he, when he returns from the peace is signed in the Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna, or outside Vienna, now inside Vienna. Um, and when Charles, when Liechtenstein returns to Hungary, where the Kaiser is, he, he meets Metternich and uh, he, he says, well, you know, I've signed this peace, uh, you know, my head, my head is at the emperor's disposal and uh, he'll, dispose, he'll either sign the peace or, or behead me as he wishes. Uh, so he knows he's taken a very risky step in signing this. And, and certainly the terms of the armistice and subsequent peace are very stringent. Uh, the armistice, for first off, in July, leaves the French army in occupation of about one-third of Austria's land area, including Vienna, which means Napoleon's in the central strategic position to counter the Austrians should they decide to renew hostilities. In the meantime, his army, of course, is supplying itself at Austria's expense. 
uh, food, wine, ammunition, uh, cloth, uh, all the other things, horses that an army might need. So then in October, when the peace comes at, at Schönbrunn, it's indeed punitive, which is again in line with Napoleon's insistence that Wagram and, and Austerlitz be, uh, be as equally conclusive. So the French, of course, withdraw from Austria, but Austria also loses about 110,000 uh, square kilometers of land with a population of about three and a half million souls, as they would have said in that day, uh, as well as its access to the sea, which in those days would have been through uh, what was then called Fiume and Trieste on the Adriatic. And Austria has to join Napoleon's continental system and recognize the Napoleonic kings that have been installed in Naples, which is Murat, and uh, of course, Joseph in Spain. And it's supposed to pay hefty indemnity, uh, which had become a big point of contention. But it could have been worse. And even, even Paul Schroeder, who's certainly no friend of Napoleon, uh, says that, look, this was not as devastating as what was imposed on Prussia in 1807. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, they, there was Napoleon considered even taking apart the Austrian Empire uh, and, and decides not to do that. So why doesn't he decide to do that? Is that because <laughs> it would create a power vacuum? Because he's, he's not shy in, in doing these things. You know, Holy Roman Empire didn't serve a purpose that he felt was, was worth kind of perpetuating it. So it was dismembered. So why not do that to the Austrian Empire? Was that going to be too difficult? in terms of management in the longer term? Would it have created some kind of power vacuum? Equally, we've got the Russians that we need to talk about at some point who have a, a role to play. What, what's stopping him from doing that? Yeah, I think in my view, uh, Russia is the key consideration. He is allied with Russia, has been since 1807. He wants to maintain that alliance. And it's very, very clear the Russians have left no doubt in anyone's mind that uh, the, the Tsar cannot tolerate the Austrian Empire being uh, broken up. And in the meantime, some of the French are saying, well, look, you know, the Russians, how much can we trust them? And maybe it's not a bad idea to have Austria left as a, as a large buffer, uh, along with Prussia on one side and the Duchy of Warsaw, and then Austria as buffers between us and the Tsar's empire. So that's, uh, that's attractive. And the cost of doing so would have been difficult and, and potentially painful, uh, certainly would have caused enormous problems with the Tsar when, He's you know, still occupied in Spain. So who, why, why in, in, incur those costs for a benefit that's, that's potentially uh, marginal or, or, or the benefits of which are not entirely clear? Uh, and of course, not part of the treaty and uh, is the fact that he ends up then married to Kaiser Franz's daughter, Marie Louise. Uh, the following year, in, 18, in early 1810, they marry, and you know, a year later, Napoleon II is born, so that's the whole point of that. And uh, so you have, in addition to this, uh, again, it's not part of the treaty, but this whole idea of a new marriage for Napoleon was already in the works, and they then settle upon uh, Marie-Louise uh, in, the, in the wake of this victory in 1809. So the other the other point that's kind of interesting on the on the armistice is uh, what happens to Charles. So he has some plenty potentiary powers as the army's commander in chief, and he uh, decides to use those powers to sign this armistice, even though he knows that this is not uh, in line with his brother the emperor's expectations. But he's absolutely convinced that if the war continues, the army will be destroyed. And that with the army gone, the dynasty would likewise be destroyed. Uh, so indeed, 
Napoleon tells the Tsar at one point, I only negotiate with Austria because they still have an army in the field. So Charles's explanations, however, find no takers at the Kaiser's court. He's now safely off in Hungary, as we talked about. Instead, when Charles's letters arrive, they, they spark disbelief, indignation, and vociferous outrage, all exacerbated by the fact that Liechtenstein is so, so late in delivering the bad news. So Charles is instantly bombarded with all, all manner of chastisements. And in my view, reading the thing, the letters that are sent to him from the emperor, uh, he's really treated like some sort of a junior subaltern. It's, you know, almost told, well, okay, make sure your shoes are, are shined and, and don't forget to comb your hair and uh, take a shower now and again, take a bath now and again. And uh, is your, are your uniforms all buttoned properly? I mean, it's this really demeaning, in my view, way. Uh, so he's, he's physically exhausted, he's ill, he's bitterly frustrated, didn't want to go to war in the first place, which is one reason that in the book I go back to the very beginnings, even though it repeats some of the work from the, the trilogy of 1809, uh, to, to trace this Charles's opposition to the war and his, his contest, this nasty contest with members of the court who are, are strong advocates of the war. So when it comes to an end, he's, he's deeply bitter. And he finally, on the 23rd of July, submits a letter of resignation, uh, which the Kaiser accepts instantly. And there's, there's, only he, there's only a little handwritten scribble, two, about two or three sentences on the bottom of Charles's letter. This, oh, yes, thank you so much for your service to the, country, the empire and the dynasty and everything. Uh, but we accept your resignation, and uh, even though it's regrettable and really too bad. Uh, in the meantime, uh, be sure to turn over command to Liechtenstein and uh, assure that all is well. Uh, thanks very much. And Charles then goes into permanent retirement. Uh, so the whole, the whole business is done in rather, to my mind, unseemly haste and with very poor grace. So Austria thereby deprives itself of probably its only general of, at that time who is capable of taking the field against Napoleon and thus makes any chance of a renewed war with the French, you know, any kind of success in a renewed war even less likely. Uh, so it's the, the peace negotiation period on the Austrian side is also very interesting. Uh, I mean, Liechtenstein technically is in charge of the army, but he's also the one going back and forth to Vienna to negotiate with Napoleon. So how can he be in charge of the army and get it set for a renewed war if he's the one conducting the negotiations and on the road half the time between Hungary and Vienna? Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but... I, <laughs> <laughs> you want me to talk about Russia for a minute? Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm I'm just staggered by the <laughs> firstly the conflict of interest for Liechtenstein, but also just uh, what an incredible case of shooting yourself in the foot <laughs> by depriving yourself of one of the best commanders of the age by accepting um, Charles's resignation. That's that's just incredible. Well, it's fascinating in that if you, if you, as I mentioned earlier on, the disparagement that's heaped on Charles by his opponents in the court is really quite amazing. And they, they see him as timid and uh, ineffective. Uh, one, of, one of the complete, well, if I can use the colloquially old toady, uh, one of the real toadies of Kaiser Franz says, oh, well, you know, Charles is a completely ordinary, even a completely ordinary general would have defeated Napoleon by now. Um, so, so this is the kind of attitude amongst those who want to pursue the war. And so they're very happy and they are actively trying to undermine Charles. I cannot prove, my guess would be that many of these, to me, demeaning letters sent from the Kaiser to Charles 
are, are at the behest of or drafted by uh, Charles's opponents in Hungary at the court. So it's, uh, it's really quite, quite astonishing. Uh, so anyway, back to Russia. Uh, so th thank you for asking about the Tsar's mighty empire. Russia plays an almost unknown role, but a very important one in the war, as well as in the lead into the war. And I, I talk about this quite a bit in the, in the three volume history, um, but it's important to keep in mind here at the very end of the war too. So even though Napoleon and the Tsar have been allied since 1807, the Tsar is is obligated by this alliance to assist the French. It doesn't say go to war with, but it does say something like you know assist or come to the aid of or something. The French should Austria attack Napoleon. This has all been reaffirmed in in October of 1808. In fact, right around now. In fact, today, 12 October is the day Napoleon issues the decree disbanding the Grande Armée. So the army that fights in 1809 is the Army of Germany, not the Grande Armée. And so in October, 12 October, 1808, he disbands the Grande Armée. A lot of them, of course, go where? Across the Pyrenees to Spain. And uh, the, uh, the, some remnant are left in Germany. Anyway, the Tsar, however, uh, he's, he's tries to, ineffectively, tries to dissuade the Austrians from going to war. Because it's very clear what the Austrians are planning in, in prior to the, launching the attack. Uh, but at the same time, he has no interest in seeing Austria destroyed or its power curtailed too much because he doesn't want to be face to face only with Napoleon after Prussia has been destroyed and crushed. Uh, moreover, there's a strong anti-French sentiment in the Russian officer corps and Russian social elite and political elite in general. So the Tsar, even though he has these obligations to Napoleon, his interest is not to see Austria beaten too badly. And he tries to satisfy both parties. He sends a, an army corps, about 30,000 or so, into Austrian Galicia, so now parts of Poland and Ukraine, in kind of symbolic support to Napoleon. But he instructs his commanders not to fight the Austrians. So th this is very clear to Napoleon. Among other things, they intercept a letter that one of the Russian commanders writes to an Austrian archduke who's commanding in Poland saying, oh, you know, we, we certainly don't want to fight you. And it, it, well, the, the, the Poles intercept this, send it to Napoleon. Napoleon's furious. Uh, so he's, he's very angry at this very tepid display of his supposed allies' uh, assistance. But the Austrians aren't reassured either. Although they, have, they try to generate an active correspondence with the Russians, they, they notice the Russians keep eating up their territory. And they wonder, well, will the Russians ever leave? Will they ever go away? Moreover, they see a strategic threat and they, they believe that there's this constant correspondence, both from the people at court and from Charles and from this Archduke Ferdinand in Poland saying, whoa, what if, what if the Russians and Napoleon combine against us? Because now Napoleon's in Moravia, the Russians are in Galicia, they're about, I don't know, 200, 300 kilometers apart, a long way, but Charles fears that they will unite. Now, Napoleon would have been most sourly amused by this because he's so disappointed in the Russians and the Russians had no intention of doing anything like this, but it's an active fear on the Austrian side and no one writes about this. This is, you know, this Russian element. There's a great piece, uh, my friend Alex uh, Mikoripse and I did a, a joint panel on the Russians in 1809 for the Consortium of the Revolutionary Era a couple of years ago. And his, his article is published by the Fondation Napoleon, which is a very good piece for mine is not, my paper is not published, but the conclusions are in this, in the book. Um, the, right, the Austrians try to, uh, all sorts of things to get 
get the Russians to either back off or, or maybe to fight them. Uh, and so it's, it's a, a fascinating to read the anxious Austrian correspondence about Russia uh, during this period of time. And Charles, in explaining the armistice, when he's trying to exculpate, exculpate himself, he cites the Russian presence in Poland as one of the reasons that, oh, not only have we held off the French and saved the army, but we've stopped the Russians in their tracks and they will not move any farther now into uh, encroach on us any longer. So even though they are not engaged in any combat, uh, Russia plays a really important and, and generally, as I say, largely overlooked, uh, it's a largely overlooked variable in calculations on both sides. It's such an incredible, <laughs> you've put together such a beautifully dynamic picture of such a complex issue. I can now see why your book is, you know, hundreds of pages, it's a really thick volume. Um, when I mentioned that I was doing this on social media, I, I got a request in from Geraint Thatcher, who wanted to ask about Archduke Charles and why he didn't get command of the Austrian force in the Russian invasion of 1812 and beyond, and instead it was given to Schwarzenberg. Now you've touched on this slightly, but just develop that slightly for, for Geraint's sake. Sure. Yeah, Charles is badly discredited, and he is uh, after 1809. And although he is the emperor's brother, uh, and although uh, some of the uh, the senior Austrian generals, sort of in this in this period of peace, uh, there's the Austrians are de actively debating whether or not to renew the war, and if so, how they would do that. And uh, a, a couple of the senior Austrian generals, Belgard for one. I think Liechtenstein too, though I could be mistaken. Uh, they, in their their memoranda to the emperor, to the Kaiser, they say, "Look, you know, we what we really need is we need a member of the imperial household to be in charge of the army because that ensures obedience, that ensures uh, sort of good morale, and and therefore, you know, they don't say please bring back Charles, but they say we need a member of the imperial household. Now, whether that would be Archduke Ferdinand, who commanded in Poland." Uh, Johann or John, the younger one is probably too young, but this is one of the claims. But the Kaiser has will have none of it, and the uh, the faction that opposes Charles in the court is so strong that he is uh, he's not even considered when, and he probably would have been sort of um, overqualified to command the what they called the auxiliary corps in 1812. It's it's sadly it's entirely called and officially called the auxiliary corps and never that never has any sort of nicer more refined designation than auxiliary uh, so he's not even considered for that and probably would have been overqualified to command a, a force of 20 to 30,000 and he's uh, he's considered but not very seriously in uh, in 1813 when uh, the Austrians changed sides and uh, uh, fight against Napoleon so Schwarzenberg who is a court favorite had been, in fact, the emissary sent to St. Petersburg in 1808 and early 1809 to deal with the Tsar and try to get the Tsar not to intervene in their war against the French in 1809. And uh, is he, he's the commander who takes over charge of the Austrian cavalry and reserves after Liechtenstein wanders off to try and find Napoleon on the 10th of July. So he's the one who is uh, his chosen uh, to uh, to be the overall commander in, uh, in 1813 and to command the Corps in 1812. I want to ask a final question that's quite kind of nerdy, but I think it's important <laughs> because 
what really struck me going through your book was that you aren't rewriting a battle for this one. You know, it's not one of those things that's been poured over so many times that we can't decipher myth from reality, as with Waterloo, which we've touched on earlier. So to do this properly, you have to really go back to the basics, like any decent researcher, except that there is no obvious starting point for you. So for the benefit of those who might be thinking about how to do a properly original battlefield study, and I have to emphasize that I'm talking about properly original rather than just let's revisit, you know, a kind of with a light dusting of perhaps a new perspective. Tell us about that process and where you sourced your info from, because I was personally deeply impressed by the strong kind of archival base that you'd consulted to put this together. Well, it's, uh, and, and the, the reason for that is that um, the, as I mentioned, there, there's not much written, there's certainly very little written in English. And what's written in English, like Peter's uh, book of Napoleon the Archduke Charles, for example, is drawn largely from uh, the history that was written by this Prusso-Austrian fellow I mentioned er earlier, Christian von uh, Binder von Kriegelstein, who did use the Austrian archives. And uh, if you you do you get a pretty good case if you take his book and um, the book by this French uh, fellow uh, Edmund Bois, uh, but uh, there are lots of gaps and, it, and Bois makes some mistakes. Uh, so uh, it was important and particularly given the, the, our, the uh, diplomatic angle, it was important to go back to try and find uh, archival material. And luckily on the Austrian side, there's a great deal uh, because the Austrians wrote what they would have gotten, the French used the same word, a relation, a relationen about their, all their engagements. And so even down to the regimental and sometimes the battalion level, you can find a lot of uh, commander's accounts. Now you have to read those in, in accordance with, oh yes, I my brigade certainly performed brilliantly and we only retreated when heavily outnumbered and, and having fighting, fighting to the last moment and had no choice. But uh, there's a lot of material on the Austrian side. And uh, even including one of the delightful things of uh, this kind of military history research, and you find the same thing in the American Civil War, is people who write afterwards in public journals who are either, the, surprisingly, uh, the French and the Austrians both, in some cases, publish their official reports in, in journals of the day. Uh, so there were several Austrian military journals. Uh, there was uh, a, a a kind of a journal called the Europäischen Adalen, which published these things. And then, then of course, you'd have your opponents who would say, well, that's very fine for Hauptmann this and that to say, but I was there and he's completely wrong. And I really saved the day, not him. Uh, there, there's a, <laughs> for example, at that's nine, there's in the French, um, I think it's in the Spectateur Militaire, it's in the Spectateur Militaire, there's, there's kind of a, an unseemly debate between uh, uh, one of the uh, general, then by then General Pele, who'd been one of Masena's staff officers, and uh, a the descendant of Masena's chief of staff, who was a fellow named Frérillon. And Frérillon, the younger, wrote a history of the invasion of Portugal, of course, also Masena. And he kind of on the sidelines mentions Nime. Well, Pele says, well, no, General Frérillon did not save Masena's life at Nime the French cavalry did, and here's how. And so there's this kind of unseemly, as I say, debate between these two. So you have these kind of things published. 
but really uh, you, you have to, because no one's written about it from a solid archival base, you really have to go back to the original material. On the French side, it's more limited. There are not as many uh, unit histories uh, written at the time, uh, sort of that at least not that I have been able to find, they might be out there and I don't know where they are. Uh, for example, the French heavy cavalry, sadly, there I could find no accounts from the division and brigade commanders or regimental commanders uh, on precisely what they did. So in the book, I have put in a little appendix that says, well, here's the best I can conclude from reading both sides of things of what happened. But you know, there are these, these gaps. And likewise, some of the, the diplomatic interaction, uh, it's not entirely precisely clear. I mean, you have some tantalizing things like the, uh, the letter that uh, the Austrian commander of the rear guard sends to Messina saying, uh, we, we plan to send the Prince Liechtenstein to meet your emperor. So we've got that, and that's great. And you have a draft of the Kaiser's instructions to Liechtenstein, but exactly how Liechtenstein made his way and why he decided to wait before going off to see the Kaiser and what other kind of communications were going on, because there are some, again, tantalizing hints, but not entirely explained. So there's always room for more research. And I was very fortunate that uh, to have uh, have great, uh, I mean, spent a lot of time in Vienna in the in the state archives and the war archives, uh, some time in in uh, Vincennes a long time ago, and then find people who could help me by by locating and, and copying things on my behalf, and uh, and assistance from all sorts of other uh, researchers and real scholars. A uh, fellow who put me in touch with the the archives in Prague, for example, uh, that, that proved. You know, filled in some of the little gaps, not as many as you always want, but a, few, a number of them. So that combined with the fact that there are no, there are very few decent maps, and I worked, uh, spent a lot of time trying to put together good maps. And the Austrian war archives have uh, two beautiful maps, extremely detailed. So you get a sense of where everyone was, at least as they saw things. And then you have to fill that in from the French side, but where, where things were and and particularly the the terrain at the time. So where, how big was the village in 1809 compared to Znaim, which is really sort of expanded today. Uh, the other the other place that was very useful was because of the Bavarian involvement. Uh, the Bavarians also were very diligent about writing uh, after action reports, and so there's a lot of that to uh, to draw from that fills in a lot of gaps. So sorry, that was a, probably a more extensive answer than you were looking for, but. <laughs> No, don't worry. Like I said, it's, it's a slightly nerdy question, but I think it's important for people to understand the process that goes into really stripping things back to the basics and trying to work out what actually happened rather than just perpetuating those same old kind of misconceived perceptions. Um, it's, it is because of the German involvement, Bavaria and Baden in particular, the Hessians are there, but they only show up the very last and they don't really participate very much. Uh, the Bodners kept a very detailed uh, sort of war diary. And uh, so there's, uh, you know, here you have the fellow, the chief of staff of their little brigade, who's writing about what they did every day. And uh, the, uh, there's a lot of stuff coming from, from this kind of unusual angles of Baden and Bavaria that otherwise kind of gets overlooked. Jack, this has been absolutely brilliant. Um, 
I know it's been a long episode, but I honestly do not care if people don't like it. Well, <laughs> then they don't like it. But you know what? It's been so detailed, so rich in terms of the information that you provided and such a, a complete snapshot of what is an excellent book. Thank you so much for joining me on The Napoleon Assessed. Well, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy, the, uh, enjoy the website. And uh, for those who have an interest in this, uh, there are yet more anecdotes uh, in the book. So uh, plus uh, 20, pl 20 odd maps you can look through to actually try and track where everybody is. So uh, thanks very much, uh, Zach, and uh, wish everyone uh, health and happiness in this very odd time we're in. That was expert in the Habsburg Empire during the Napoleonic Wars, John Gill, who joined me to discuss the Battle of Znaim. You can find John's book, The Battle of Znaim, that's spelt Z-N-A-I-M, Napoleon, the Habsburgs and the End of the 1809 War from Greenhill Books, is available to order on the Pen and Sword website now, and at the time of recording, had 20% off. You can also find his multi-volume work on the Vagram campaign, 1809, Thunder on the Danube, from the same site where it currently has 25% off. So pick yourself up an early Christmas present. These are huge books. Znaim is over 500 pages, the others are well over 400, and they are deeply researched, so you will be getting one hell of a deal. I hope you'll feel that you've been slightly spoilt in recent weeks on the Napoleon Assist, as the episodes have progressively become longer and more detailed, thanks to the brilliant contributions of my guests. But you're about to get even more spoilt, as in November, the Napoleon Assist will play host to the long-heralded Napoleon Month. The plan is quite simply one podcast a week, focusing in-depth on Napoleon, his life, legacy, and those around him. I will present a piece offering my thoughts on the man and offering some kind of a summary of his life. Be warned, I'm not known for being a fan of Napoleon, but equally, if you detest the man, you're not going to be satisfied with that one either. I'm deliberately going to be very balanced in that podcast, recognising both the merits and the failings of the man, with the main aim for me being to tear down those who think that the sun shines out of Napoleon's every orifice and worship him in true cult Napoleon fashion, which for me is just ever so slightly vomit-inducing in terms of how over-the-top it gets. I will also be featuring an impassioned but crucially polite debate between Marcus Cribb and Luke Daly Groves, on Napoleon's reputation. I'll be putting my own opinions carefully to one side to give both sides a fair hearing, asking some tough questions of both of them. And crucially, we will show that discussing Napoleon's legacy does not need to descend into the posting of memes, the screaming of pro and anti-Napoleon propaganda, and the hurling of insults. So take note, social media trolls. But that's not all. I'll also be talking to experts on Napoleon's way of waging war, looking at both his strategic and tactical traits, but also how he intertwined war and foreign policy. And yes, we'll look at that controversial argument that Napoleon was a man of peace. I'll also be joined by Josh Proven, star of Adventures in Historyland, in the first of what will hopefully become a series of specials, where we look at Napoleon's marshals, generally with a particular theme in mind. This one we are irreverently calling Boney's Lads in Spain, where, as the name kind of suggests, we're going to focus on the Peninsula War, talking particularly about Ney, Salt, Massima, Suchet and Marmont, because we need to discuss Salamanca chicken. If you don't know what Salamanca chicken is, put hashtag Salamanca chicken into Twitter, but we'll explain it when we get there. And we will also try to squeeze Jourdain and Victor in there as well, although we want to do them properly, so we'll see how that unfolds. 
December will also be a very busy month as you get a Christmas bonus. I'll be speaking to Gareth Glover about his new book on the 52nd at Waterloo. I know you might be thinking, what, another episode on Waterloo? But Gareth is trying to put a long-held dispute to bed on who routed the Imperial Guard and the 52nd's role in the battle. So that's going to be a great point to discuss as we build up to Christmas. And I'm also aware that you folks will be looking for stocking fillers. And what better thing to buy for the Napoleon assists in your life than books on the period? So I'll be offering you a few reviews on some of the books that I've looked at over the course of the year. You may or may not want to buy them. That's your call. I take no responsibility for whether you disagree with my views on them. But bear in mind that I work on the premise that if I can't say something positive about the book and generally be favourable in my review, then I don't release my reviews, regardless of uh, what I might write for the publishing companies. So judge that as you wish. And finally, I'm very excited to have a chapter coming out in an edited collection that's been published by Hellion. The book comes out in a couple of weeks and is entitled Life in the Red Coat. And so I'm going to give you a bit of a taster of my thoughts for that chapter, but it won't be the full thing. So if you want to know all of my evidence and reasoning, you'll have to buy the book. What all of that means is that for the next seven weeks, you'll be getting an episode every single week, starting from early November. So consider that my Christmas present to you. You know how I wrap these things up. Please do get involved in the discussion online. You can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory, and both Jack and I are on the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net. So if you've got a question, there's a thread there. Come and join us for a chat. If you're enjoying the podcast, it always helps to have a review, preferably a five-star one if you're a satisfied customer, but don't let me sway you. It should definitely be a five-star review though. Until next time, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.